Welcome to the Post Talk Live podcast, where we host live salon gatherings for curious people around the world. Hosted by me, Susan McTavish-Best. Hi, this is Post Talk's producer, Rob Perra. Today's salon, Does God Need an R&D Department, is co-hosted by Post Talk and Templeton World Charity Foundation. The co-interviewer today is Templeton World Charity Foundation President, Andrew Sarazen. Enjoy. Thank you guys so much for coming here tonight to this salon, Does God Need an R&D Department? But we're also going to talk about ritual. For those of you who don't know me, and actually most of you do, but I know there's a handful of you who don't know me, my name is Susan, and this is my home. I'm happy to have you here this evening, and I'm co-hosting with Andrew Sarazen. Uh, We haven't done this for a long time. Andrew is the president of the Templeton World Charity Foundation. And I feel at this point, we literally like are an entertainment team for these sorts of conversations. I've seen the morning show. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we're we're thrilled because we have a grant from Templeton for conversations like these and for building community. And this is our third year of collaborating together and having all sorts of cool evenings, uh, basically kind of around the world, starting off in Svalbard. Um, a few housekeeping things. What's your Instagram handle for anyone? This is totally uh, you know, on the record. Why wouldn't it be? Mine. Yes. Oh, at CasperTK underscore. There you go. Um, Templeton is Templeton World on Correct. Instagram. Yep. And I'm Mac Tavish Best and at Post Talk Salons. Uh, other housekeeping things before we get started. Uh, appreciate the musicians. Yeah. Musicians, and, uh, musicians that we met, and we've all had a shitty couple of years, but musicians certainly have. And one thing we love at, at, at the postdoc salons is to be able to um, support musicians and have different musicians here. Your plates, we're not serving you. I did cook for you, but please move your plates to the kitchen. That's another housekeeping thing. And, and I think that's it. I can't think of any other housekeeping things. Quick introduction of Andrew. Uh, like I said, he's the president of the Templeton World Charity Foundation, and he's a scientist. Are you a biochemist? No. Eh. Um, anyway, he's a scientist. He's an entrepreneur. He's a friend. He's a dad. He's a husband. And he's a, just a really great friend, and he's super curious. Well, thanks, Susan. You're welcome, Andrew. And Casper, I don't know at all, um, but he's from Sussex. And uh, he was a climate activist who was an atheist and gay and thought, hmm, I'm going to rock up to Harvard Divinity School. So uh, um, people might have been confused. And, but he's uh, an extreme podcaster and uh, author of the book, The Art of Ritual. Power of Ritual. Power yes. of Ritual. And right there. I know. <laughs> See, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. Um, and you're the co-founder of Sacred Design Lab, which we're going to find all out about. But do you want to talk a little bit? Tell well, me I just want to say thank you to you, Susan, for cooking for us. The food has been amazing. The atmosphere yeah. is wonderful. You look glamorous as always. Aww, you know, um, it's just great to be back here. Specifically, it's been almost two years. You've been showering outside, you know, in Northern California. I've been living in a, like this. I've, I've, I've been on. I've been on an island. You know, in the Caribbean for you know, for two years. Wow, and, I'm really uh, the odd one out with a yeah, Casper. What's your what's, yeah? yeah it's like, <laughs> well, you know, it's a wasteland of sorts. Anyway, um, <laughs> sorry. So just thank you, Susan, and um, 
you know, uh, just a little bit about Templeton World Charity Foundation. Um, I think sort of we, we people ask about uh, us about you know the, the pandemic and how it changes our approach to philanthropy. We we're we're a funder of research, uh, policy, and practice, all related to the subject of human flourishing. And um, you know, the past two years have taught me that like this is the most important question today. Uh, and it, these are questions we've been asking ourselves for the past two years. What do we value and why? What do we believe in and why? What, who do we s surround ourselves with and why? Um, how do we create communities that uh, support us and reinforce us? Um, you know, and so in, in short, how do we flourish and not just survive? And so, um, you know, I was reminded about the sort of introduction of today's conversation uh, with Casper, um, which is sort of taking these two things, which is the, the human search for meaning and purpose and truth, and mashing that up with data and experimentation and product design. And, you know, on the way over here from my hotel, I uh, was listening to Christmas carols. Um, I passed, uh, you know, I had passed, um, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic, um, I had passed a church, I had I'd seen um, mindfulness app advertisements, um, and, you know, on, my, on the way home, I'm going to read um, Harry Potter. And so these, uh, you know, meanwhile, like sort of interested in, you know, uh, peyote and psychedelic research, right? So all of these things, which um, we sort of take from different cultural traditions, this is fueled by technology, and we're remixing all of these things in our life today. Uh, and we're dabbling with different things. And there's nobody on the planet that I think is more in touch with that process of combining spirituality and faith and meaning and purpose, um, there's nobody that's more in touch with that than, than Casper. And so um, we're super excited about work together uh, with you at Sacred Design Lab. Um, and it's just a cool topic because it's something that I think speaks to all of our hearts. And, um, and hopefully we can all learn a little bit about um, how we navigate these questions uh, with the, you know, aided by the work you do. So. Take it away, guys. Well, no. We, so this, uh, for those who haven't been here before, it's really just a conversation. Sometimes we throw out questions. Um, so a quick, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, a quick quote from Casper's book. In many ways, the understanding of religion over the last few hundred years is an anomaly. Because the West has been deeply marked by a Protestant Christian understanding, we assume re religion is all about what you believe. That's part of it, of course. But most of the world and certainly most of history, point to a different way of thinking about religion, and that's about what you practice. So my first question, is religion declining, or is it morphing into a less monotone sort of spirituality? Yeah. Well, good evening, everyone. Hello. Um, Easy I, question, Casper. Let's just jump into it. <laughs> um, I hope I won't offend anyone. Yes, religion is not declining. Religion is transforming. Um, we look at all the data of affiliation and church membership and all of the kind of obvious headlines and all of those are going down except Islam through uh, immigration and Buddhism mostly through people uh, becoming Buddhist. Is but Buddhism coming, going up or is it, it going is down? Slightly, it is going yes, up slightly, very slightly, mm -hmm. yeah. Everyone else. Um, but it's through a very limited set of metrics that we understand religion. And so if you're only looking at attendance or how often people 
uh, identify as a particular tradition, like Andrew was saying, I'm Catholic, um, then we only see part of the story. When you look at where people are going to explore the questions of ultimate meaning, what, you know, how they make sense of, of death and, and suffering, um, and even if those places might be unexpected, like a CrossFit gym or a Headspace app or um, a hiking club or a Beyonce concert, what's happening in those places I think is profoundly spiritual, if not religious, even if we don't necessarily narrate our lives through those traditional channels. Um, and Andrew pointed to this mixing uh, idea, which I think is really powerful to help us make sense of what's happening because uh, we tell the story of religion often as a, a consistent kind of pneumatic tube through history. You know, Christianity started here and 2000 years later, now we're here. That's completely false. Uh, you know, every religion interacts with cultures and economies and other religions near and around it, uh, sometimes in conflict. Um, but they shape one another. And so in an age where, aided by the internet, we are encountering one another at in incredible speeds and scales, uh, those things too are mixing and adapting and encountering one another. And so no longer can many people say, oh, I'm just Jewish or I'm just this. It's like, well, my, my dad was this, my mom was this, I use that app, I go on this retreat, but I'm always home for the holidays. And that is a kind of mosaic, uh, uh, a bricolage, the scholars might say, um, as I drop my microphone, um, What does um, it mean for religious institutions as people are sort of making a patchwork of their own spirituality? Like, a little bit of Peloton over here, a little bit of trail running, a little bit of post-talk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just a dash. Uh, every two years. I think we need some incense, actually, here. Uh, I meant to burn some earlier yeah, out yeah. on the street. I meant to it. For those of you who don't know, she actually burns the meat first. So that it, it's, it's sort of it all comes comes out. So that as you enter, it's this. I like, do do that. On yeah. And set the smoke alarm. You know what's up? Uh, okay. <laughs> now I've completely forgotten the question. No, the question is what's <laughs> happening. What like what's traditional religion? Because everyone's patching things yeah. and together. Because you work say. with Sacred yes. Design Lab, you actually work with these yeah. you know mainline traditions, and so you I think you have a great yeah. view, viewpoint on what's happening inside them. There's there's a real scale I would say in terms of how religious institutions respond. No doubt there are many. Um, if you think about evangelical Christianity, for example, uh, certainly the Catholic Church by and large, uh, there's a real sense of, of hold on to what we have, uh, of, of maintenance, of um, kind of closing ourselves off. When you off. say hold on, are you meaning cling? Yes, okay. desperately. Okay, um, okay, okay. <laughs> it was very delicate that you were saying that. So well, get and, a better understanding. <laughs> there's, there's even uh, the, the, the Benedict option, it's called, within Catholic circles, you might be familiar with this, of literally kind of retreating from the world. You know, the world is lost. Let us stay safe and close to one another. So that certainly is one reaction. The ones I'm most interested in are religious leaders who, for one reason or another, have enough faith in, in the wisdom of their own tradition that it will change in a way that, is, uh, that has integrity. And so even if we might not have as many buildings as we did, or even if ordination doesn't look like it used to, that in their language, the spirit of God lives in a way that will still, still be faithful. So the best example for me are actually Catholic nuns, um, because they are so close to the, the kind of precipice of disappearance. You know, there mm. used to be 400,000 women religious. How many are there now? Like, just well, in the United States. In the, actually, in the United in States. In Africa, there's Oh, there's still millions. Yeah, how yeah, many yeah. in the United States? In the United States, there's now less than 40,000 in the uh, average I said, it's age. It's good I have an option for career. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, are, I gotta like the salon business. You never know. It's like, there are strict entry requirements. We all have different chapters. What would we do? We all have different chapters. You know, life. I'm struggling to figure out like what would be the hardest for me. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not do you know I'm, what? I think we all immediately think about sex. But obedience. I, well, it's obedience I think for it's me. Obedience. I think yeah. the obedience. And, <laughs> yeah. and poverty, which which often we think about. You don't have anything, but it's more about common ownership. Yeah. And I think in a society where we're so focused and forced to focus on what is mine and, and the individualism ahead, versus and this, exactly. You know, yeah. That it's massively countercultural to to submit to that kind of uh, community living. Because we will say in rooms like this, oh, community, isn't it wonderful? We love building community. Community is fucking awful. Like, <laughs> people are shit. Say more about no, that. Like, I, we we both went to British sleepaway schools. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. The fathom system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, awful. I was deep in it. People are trash. But I love them, actually. <laughs> no, I love them too. But when you get close and you have to stay close to them, you see all of the frustrations and the ugliness and the selfishness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just in other people, but in ourselves. Pack animal thing. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's why I love and respect these women so much, because essentially what they say is, yes, our form of religious life is dying, right? They ran hospitals, they ran education systems, no longer. But they talk in their language that the charism of those communities, the kind of um, the inciting uh, uh, dream and the commitments to certain values that those communities hold dear, they trust that that is still alive in the world. Mm. It just looks completely different than mm -hmm. it did for them. So tell us more about how you at Casper got into all of this. The um, atheist gay guy yeah. who was a climate activist. Climate. It was like, oh, that And so, you know, you, you, you rock up to Harvard Divinity School. What did you find there? Yeah, what, what? What was that like? I found myself. <laughs> and we're all here to hear it. <laughs> Let's do tell. Well, there's really, there's two parts of the story. One is, um, so I grew up in a village in a Waldorf school. Does anyone know Steiner Education, Waldorf? Yeah. I don't know. So it's a very... Uh, I'm it, from Ohio. You know? Yeah, you're from Ohio. Ohio. I thought he was joking. We have some Ohioans here. Where are the Ohioans? Where are the Ohioans? Yeah, there we go. All right, guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Is that, is that the Buckeye State? You got it, buddy. Yeah. Uh, my husband is from Kentucky, and so all I know is like, yes. But is it Louisville or is it Lexington? Wow. Anyway, so there are, there are two strands. One is this Waldorf school, which, um, for those of you not familiar, is uh, really a descendant of Rudolf Steiner, who was this very interesting man talking about mixing. His kind of the theological project was to bring Hinduism and Christianity together in the early 20th century. But what came out of his work was this education system really focused on the holistic development of the child. So I didn't learn to write until I was 10, but I could have recited French poems and, um, you know, danced and made very an hippy dippy. Yeah, very, very hippy dippy. So all of which is to say, that school was very, very rich in its ritual. I see. So yeah. on May Day we danced around a maypole, and on Michaelmas we made lanterns and sang in the street, mm. and. On Christmas Eve, and I will be back in England to do this uh, in just a few weeks, we go to all the different um, barnyard animals on the local biodynamic farm, and we sing them Christmas carols. Very sweet. Uh, now, do you, hold on a second. So, like the cows, do they get a certain? Absolutely. What do they get? Absolutely. What do they get? They first Noel? Well, they like Hark the Herald. Um, and then, <laughs> the chicken. I mean, uh, anything the with a manger, I think, gets priority <laughs> That's there. That's true. But, uh, anyway, so that was the childhood I grew up with, which was very rich in practice, but very um, w without a sort of imposition of theological doctrine. 
Mm. I've become much more open to what doctrine really is. But at that point, certainly as a gay kid, it felt very free. Mm. Um, so that was one strand of life. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other strand was going to a boarding school uh, and being horrifically bullied, as you know, every queer kid is in a boarding school, and feeling just horrifically lonely. Mm. And that sense of isolation mm. and disconnection and just longing to belong mm -hmm. uh, was incredibly strong. Mm. And so I found that in the climate movement of all places mm -hmm. and got really involved in um, mobilizing young people around the UN climate negotiations. Was it disappointing at all? Well, I had a bit of a breakdown. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, well, I mean, who doesn't if you work in the climate right, movement? Right, okay. Because you come up so close to the horrors of, mm. of what is and what is to come and the smallness of our individual lives, that it, I think it forces these existential questions. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I ended up in divinity school, because what I felt able to do, even as an activist, uh, compared to the scale of the problem as I understood it, was mm -hmm. so overwhelming that I started to move away from how do we stop climate change from happening to how do we adapt to the reality of, of mm -hmm. a changed climate. And so the question I was always asking myself is, who has thought about how to make sure that we welcome the stranger, the climate refugee, the person who arrives at our doorstep, who is coming? Um, and that's when I thought more and more about religion. What's the difference between, I mean, I, I think I know, between habit and ritual and can habits, I think a lot of habits in my life, and I'm sure in most of our lives, you start out as a, you make it a habit to say exercise or go trail running. Um, and then it becomes a ritual as you mm. get older. How did you notice that difference when it changed? Uh, I didn't until I was reading your book. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, other than it's extremely, you know, I have these things that are very important to me. I went to a Scottish boarding school and it was a lot of ritual, as he was just saying. And I'm very, I just thought I was very disciplined, actually. But I think maybe I just like the ritual and I'm not remotely disciplined. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure you but are. But I think sure it goes are. over. I mean, you know, when yeah. you're 22, you go, exercise six days a week because you're going to look good in your jeans. And Some then as time, goes on, <laughs> as time goes on, that time in nature yeah. becomes a ritual and like you turn on certain music or yes. you put away your phone and it becomes something you look forward to. Actually, even today I went up to Equinox. I've been there for a while because I just came into town. I was like, actually, this is a ritual. This isn't a mm. habit. Mm. I just want to be around other people. I'm there for like 11 minutes. Um, but it's a great little chapter in my day that I'm very disciplined to do and, and yeah. I love that you say chapter in your day because I think one of the purposes of ritual is to give structure to time. Mm -hmm. No, um, it, it, absolutely. And so when we think, John O'Donoghue, who was a wonderful poet and priest, talked about um, a holy life is a life in rhythm. Mm. And I think that's one of the things in a kind of overworked culture and all the things that we navigate um, that, that we miss those moments that interrupt us. Well, they make us feel safe, right? Exactly. Particularly in these wobbly the last couple of years, um, everyone's felt a little bit wobbly, and I think rituals... Ground us. Ground, yeah, yeah, it's like everything else might be shit, but at least I know this is here yeah. for me every day. And and that's what they're there for, to help us navigate uncertainty. Do you have some rituals, Andrew? I have some rituals. Hmm. What do you do before dinner? Oh, yeah, definitely. We have this thing, we have this thing, well, meals are really important, right? So, you have we have this thing called um, high low buffalo. Oh, yes, which is uh, we go this. over um, what a high for them today is and a low from the day, and then the buffalo, which is the funny thing that happened that oh, day. Uh, so, it starts so. out as being good parenting and then it moves in, it's like a habit, and then it yeah. moves into ritual. No, but then that's a great example yeah. to give structure to time. 
um, you know, because that's that's sort of the the, the space every day that you do. And it facilitates human connection. I mean, yeah. so this is the point about the practices that for me is so important is, mm. you know, humans, anthropologists tell us, had ritual before we had language. So it's whether it's moving our bodies to the same beat or whether it's finding shared actions to do with food or some, you know, nature, something. It's it's the way in which we feel connected to one another. Mm. Um, so I, I love high low buffer. Love I know like you know rose bud and thorn, but high low buffer is better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. So um, now, but you know, you what, one thing I'm interested in is as you look at all of the kind of remixing um, sort of challenges, negotiations that are happening today. Like, how do you? Is there a framework that you apply that says, like, yes, this is this is net positive, a, a sort of an innovation that is is aligned or good um, versus things which are sort of pathological or or, or bad, and, and um, because you know change change happens, but I think you know not always in a good way. And so, like, what do you look at to say actually, like, this is the Casper like quality seal of approval for for some you know new ritual or some activity that's, that that you see out there? Yeah. So at Sacred Design Lab, we talk about centering. Can you can you tell folks oh, about yeah. Sacred yeah, Design let's get Lab? That. Oh, sorry. Yes. So that's the organization I, I run with my Such two co-founders. Such a co -founders. great name, right? Oh, I'm glad you like it. We I think we all want time to... thinking about it. Okay. Well, it it was well worth it. Thank you. Um, so we try and think about you know human-centered design is this wonderful approach that we're all familiar with that that centers immediate human needs and the way we try to think about uh, centering these sacred questions was to think about three things that our, our souls long for, if I can use that word. So the, the longing for belonging, a sense of connection, not just to other people, but also to place, to a sense of time, a sense of ancestry maybe, a story that we're part of. The second one is to think about becoming. So how do I become the person that I want to, to be? Okay, so this is past and future. Oh. Yeah, this is this is Jane and I. I've been email, we've been emailing about her interest in the future, and I like future, but I like the past a lot. Yeah. So this is past, and this is future. Every tradition was once an innovation. So yeah. yeah. Um, so be becoming, sorry, belonging, becoming, mm -hmm. and then the third one is beyond. So how do we connect with something beyond ourselves? That that sense of transcendence, mm -hmm. something that makes us feel, um, you know, like a night sky can make us feel both fully part of it and yet totally minuscule at the same mm. time. I like to think of that as right-sizing the, the human ego, mm. uh, right? When we're, uh, we're just as worthy as anyone else, but no more, no less. Right. So the longing becoming beyond, that's kind of the framework that we use to think about is, is this practice going to serve the, the needs that people have today? And what's what's something that you know you've uncovered through this? What's what are some examples that that people here should know about and check out? Yeah, so the, I mean, there's what's really exciting is that there is significant innovation in the spirituality space. Okay, uh, <laughs> but it's not just like you know new age angel cards no, that I no. can get. Right? And frankly, like cobbling together your like Peloton and then your yoga class, I mean, that's not innovation, right? I, I mean, is it? I think there are ways in which it is. Okay. So, for example. I mean, um, but how does Peloton th help you think about think, beyond? Oh, because Peloton uh, is a group religious thing, and some of the well, no, it's, it's certainly it's certainly belonging, it's possibly becoming beyond, in a yes. narrow sense. But how? I mean, you know, the the, the sense of the transcendent on on and it, and it's what's it's, her name? Love on Sundays. Yeah, exactly. Allie Love. Right. Allie, I mean, <laughs> yeah. she's preaching, right? Like. Yeah. It, it, that's really true. I didn't realize she was preaching, and I kind of liked that I got a Peloton, and then I read this, I was like, oh. Yeah, I think I cried a couple of times. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Even just last week, I was like, oh. 
so emotional these days. Actually, it was just Ali Love preaching to me. Well, and the fact that your body was was exercising because yeah, it yeah. reduces our kind of inner cynicism yeah. when we're in those environments. Yeah, she's so cheery. Yeah. But one one good example maybe that that comes from kind of the religious world into the secular world is One Table. I don't know if anyone. No, I don't know what that is. One Table. Um, so it's a wonderful organization that looked at Judaism as a whole and said, you know, what's at the very heart of what we love about this Jewish tradition? It's Shabbat. And how can we help people celebrate Shabbat without having to engage in everything else in synagogue life or accept all sorts of other, you know, elements of, of Jewish life that people may not want? Um, and so what they do is they built a, a technology platform that helps you organize a dinner for Friday night and it gives you some money to go buy groceries. What is it called again? One table. Oh yes, I went to their yeah. website the other day. They have a whole app. It's quite it's busy. Cool. There's like a lot of dinners There's going on. There's a lot of dinners on Friday night. We literally Was looked it? at it and we were like, oh, we should build a post talk app. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it takes out some of the stresses yeah. of organizing uh, an event and, and helps make it more accessible in that way. Um, and another example, I'm gonna riff with Judaism here. The same founder actually created um, so in Jewish tradition, you have the mikvah, uh, which is the kind of ritual bath, uh, um, which was used at various moments, but included um, uh, in a menstrual cycle, for example, women would go to the mikvah after having their period. Um, and so it is, in, in most Jewish circles, people think of it as quite a conservative, kind of old-fashioned thing. Good or not, I'm not saying. But the innovation was to say, actually, what a beautiful example of a moment in which you can mark a transition. Why don't we make a mikvah available when you go through a divorce or when you go through a gender transition or you graduate? Um, and you don't have to use maybe the traditional prayers if you want uh, to sing, uh, you know, the latest Adele track as you fully submerge underwater, not wearing makeup or jewelry, uh, then let's help you design your own kind of transformative experience. So often it's where the, the kind of popular culture meets these ancient practices that it can become remixed and, and relevant to the whole group of There is a lot of office space right now. Um, and as companies are sort of figuring out the next year or two and people working at home and sometimes working in the office, are you advising any of them and how they might reuse their office space? Um, yes, yes and. <laughs> um, we, we were actually involved uh, advising Pinterest on their new uh, head office before COVID hit um, because they wanted spaces for community and ritual mm -hmm. in the office space. Because what they found was a number of people who worked there didn't have space to host dinners at their mm -hmm. house and they knew human connection was important. And so they wanted to include having places where people could eat together. And so what would it look like? I'm sorry, I want to get into the design of it. Were they nice? Fire, fireplaces. Was, well, oh, yeah. Like you start the with a tree stuff. that has two rugs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the imperfection of it. How do you make yeah. it imperfect? I was going to say, they need you because you would have been the perfect person Please, to Please, you to. know, we were for hire at post time. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in terms of how to reimagine space now, yeah. I think one of the big conversations is uh, what is what is in-person for and what is digital for? Mm -hmm. And so when you have both, um, how do you lean into the things that you can only do when you're in person? So mm -hmm. Google, for example, has bought a forest where people can go on walks together. Um, because walking That's the most together, Google thing. And I yeah. saw, I There's saw. also something called the national parks. You don't need to own the forest. In I fact, saw actually, Mark this. is buying a ranch, I think, right? For sales, I don't know, I'm looking at you. But um, Mark Benioff, I think, was musing the other day about buying a ranch because of the importance of people getting together. 
with so, Salesforce. And I think that pattern in terms of work is going to look a lot like the, the changing pattern of religious life where you're not going to be together every week on a Sunday morning or Saturday or Friday night, whatever, um, for, for an in-person experience. But you're going to go for maybe quarterly, much deeper dive retreats that are multi-day or, or a sort of summer camp experience or something that's intense and personal without screens that then sustains you for the next however long until people come together again. So That makes me a bit sad. What, 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 you what? have to be sustained until the next time. I don't know. I quite like it every day. <laughs> I, I mean, who doesn't? And I think who doesn't want to move into sort, some sort of like well, cooperative I mean, living you know, well, situation? When's the last time you've been to an office every day? Yeah. Like, you know, you know you, that's, that's not, you know, have to work this out. I mean, I would, it's nice to be gathered, though, every day. Well, I think the general point I mean, is, like, gather. there's an analogy that I use with work where it's um, the office used to be a space of control where it was like a demarcation between the outside world and the and mm. you know and what happens and so it was you know to organize space and time to control that for the employees that you had hired and i think it's going to move from a fortress analogy to something more like a kitchen right. actually to yeah. susan's point you know a place of sustenance you come in with with things that you can only get in person yeah, so exactly has Templeton, I, mean, I know you have, but can you tell us about some of the funding um, research around around ritual or? Um, um, no, yeah, like quite quite a bit of sort of um, mapping mapping ritual around the world in in different you know sort of like to understand um, you know how how certain uh, ritualized practices aid in moral decision making mm. or um, uh, actually pro social behavior. So we have a study right now that is looking at. Um, actually on, on the, the issue of um, fasting and religiously inspired fasting and whether fasting, which has some kind of transcendent element mm -hmm. to it, actually, um, you know, through randomized controlled trials actually shows more pro-social benefit than fasting that doesn't have that kind of, you know, dieting, for example, um, as, as a, 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 a sort of an example of, of this kind of um, effective ritual on uh, well-being. Mm. Does religion do something to our brain? Oh, no doubt. I mean, that's the whole point, actually, <laughs> yes. I think. Scientifically? Yeah. Yeah, For I mean, sure. this is one of the exciting things, and meditation is, you know, the most well-researched one at this point. Um, yeah, there's a cool there's a cool book called um, Why We Need Religion by Stephen Asma, who's, who's he's an atheist, um, and he says that, you know, religion is, he argues that it's the most sophisticated form of human culture to manage human emotions. Mm. So like processes of joy and grief um, anger. and anger, like sort of, you know, the kind of looking at all the practices around religion are, um, you know, the most powerful examples of that. And this is, I think, the answer, or at least uh, pointing to an answer of the core question of does God need an R&D lab? Hey, well, that's... We, we <laughs> well, none, and, and it needs many, right? There's yeah. certainly no one who's going to figure this out. But that essentially, we know that it's important. But for so many people, we can't believe the story or the theology that we've been given. That, so that there's this sense of oh, desiring. There's a difference between story and practice, right? Yes, and we don't, and we don't have the kind of meaning-making layer that holds these practices together, that we're willing to, to submit to them fully. Mm. And I think that's, that's one of the key questions theologically, is how, how do we talk about God in a way that it feels real and powerful mm. and not a man in the sky with a trident? Um, Sandy, can I put you on the spot for a second? <laughs> um, I, Sandy was a cardiologist, and we did a salon last week in just LA. Ba just back from a great success on the West great Coast, everyone. Great success, salon on the West Coast. Yeah. Um, but do you see patients come in? 
Have you ever noticed a patient who's like religious or not religious and how it affects their heart at all or believing in anything? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, actually there was, uh, thank you. Oh, that's so nice of you. There there have been studies on um, on prayer both on your behalf as Mm. well as by uh, patients uh, that show that outcomes uh, after heart surgery are better in patients who have who have a belief this yeah sort of belief or this structure to their lives um so yeah no it's 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 fascinating mm. and, and you know as you pointed out I mean, meditation um has tremendous benefits on the heart that we're only just now coming to understand because mm. in part because for the longest time uh, cardiologists didn't recognize stress as a risk factor for heart disease. And it's only really in the last probably 20, 30 years where we're starting to see the effects of stress on, on, on heart disease, both in a chronic and acute way. So meditation, yoga, mm. prayer are, are you know therapies that we're just starting are to Are health see. insurance companies encouraging this or beginning to? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, one of, one of the big things that the the healthcare world is really coddling onto is the, some uh, the yeah, damaging impact of loneliness and so the necessity of social connection. Yeah. <clears throat> but hospitals are really bad at building community. Um, and so, uh, and frankly, a medical approach to thinking about relationships often is like, okay, I'm a doctor, you're a patient, let me prescribe you an art class in which you'll find all of the other lonely people that I also prescribed to go to art class. And so, like, the vibe is not that good. Um, so, you're seeing healthcare, um, you're seeing hospitals and, health and, and healthcare providers really trying to reimagine who is a healthcare provider. And so, one of the things I'm really interested in is can we start to see community builders, religious leaders, um, you know, people who run uh, recovery circles as providing a, a, a really important and um, powerful. Healthcare delivery, and I think that was the last maybe question we had, which was sort of like in in like five to ten years, you talk about this with healthcare, but like what's next for church? What's next for work? Um, What's next for school? You know, taking some of the insights that you've you've learned uh, over the past few years. Yeah, I think we'll continue to see institutional religious decline, as we talked about. I think the workplace is going to become not necessarily the location, right? Meditation classes, yoga classes at work. I think they're going to become... Or SFO, you know, airports maybe, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) But I think they will become the conduit. So you're already starting to see uh, not just kind of personal development budgets, but an essential investment in employees that they have a coach, that they have a small group of peers, Mm. that essentially the workplace is the way in which people will access spiritual community, which brings up all sorts of questions around access and, and wealth. Um, so I think that's one trend. Um, I think you'll see more and more the the religiousization. That's a, not a real word. What does word. that mean? But essentially, like the way in which political identity now has replaced religious identity. Mm. Um, this sense of of total kind of willingness. You can to say zealotry. Zealotry, yeah, and and just a sense of like uh, t- turning political leaders, and we're seeing this obviously with Trump most most powerfully. Uh, that people are willing to be martyrs for the cause. And so religion moving into different areas of, of political and public life um, because it's not a static thing. That's a, again, that's such a, a, a legacy of the Reformation. For all the good it gave us, it mm. did give us that.
Do we have any questions here? Yes, George, from the front row. Yeah. Um, one thing that hasn't really been talked about much in this is the uh, the, the human soul. And actually, um, and you would know better than I, but most of the world's major religions are really preoccupied with the soul and how purified it is. Many of the rituals we have are designed specifically to help us, you know, achieve some sort of higher purpose, but really the manifestation of our souls. And I'm just curious, um, given the context of today, how you see rituals um, helping to manifest our, our human souls? What a beautiful question. I think we don't think we have souls most of the time. The, the kind of the secular world. I don't. I think so much of religious practice, like meditation, gets put into a kind of growth mindset frame of becoming better, um, of uh, achieving more, being more productive. Um, when at least in my theological imagination, that's not what the soul is for. The, the soul is already perfect. Um, uh, and so, I think so much of I hope good ritual can do is to help us come home to the sufficiency of who we are. Um, I like to, uh, who was I talking to before? Was it Grant who was Baptist? Yeah, Baptist. Grant, yeah. Yeah, um, so this is my favorite Baptist preacher line, which is um, essentially like, God loves you just the way you are, but too much for you to stay the same. Um, <laughs> I, I just love because it makes it makes space for the sufficiency of what is, but also points to that invitation towards growth. Um, but the, the ordering of those two is so important that we don't start with you have to be different from who you are, but that we start with that you are entirely beloved and good. And because of that, you can you can get more, etc. So um, that was probably slightly diagonal to, to the question that you were asking. But essentially, I just don't think there is a, a rich popular imagination about what our souls are. The best one is Harry Potter. I really think so, right? Are you plugging the podcast? I, I'm, I'm certainly going to plug the podcast called Go Harry Potter it. and Sacred Text. Been going running now six years where we read every chapter uh, and treat it like Listen to tell text. people about it. Cause yeah, tell, tell me. Well, no, no, let, let me just finish I did not Say that again. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. <laughs> but found wherever you get your podcast. It was the number one podcast. Number, number two. Number, number two. two. <laughs> but, um, but Voldemort rips his soul apart as he kills people, right? Like he creates the Horcruxes. And I, I'm not sure where else we're confronted by the like horror of what happens when you murder someone for your own gain outside of Baltimore. So I, I, I'm building that bridge slightly. <laughs> Jane, yeah. Huh? Huh. That's so nice. Yeah. I love what right. you Mike. said. So I'm curious, should, what about the that. darker side of religion? Mm. The guilt, the punishing yes. aspect of making one be good. Does that make you come back too? Yeah. <laughs> The, ato the atomic bomb. Yeah, exactly. Things, yeah, right. <laughs> no, religion is like fire. It, it can be a candle, a hearth, a, a you know stovetop, but it can also burn your life down. You know, it, it, I think of it as as a like it's a technology, right? And we can do <laughs> horrific things with technologies. Um, certainly, in the radicalization, the polarization, I think that that is true. Um, the what's really interesting, looking at evangelicals. Although um, acceptance and support for same-sex relationships is way higher generationally, the views on abortion are exactly the same as they were 50 years ago. Um, so there are still some issues where that polarization is very true. But do you think, I mean, to press on that point, do yeah. you think this model of, of you know, becoming, belonging, and beyond doesn't really, it's not normative. It doesn't give you a judgment about whether something is pathologic 
or beneficial? And, and what's yeah. required to make that differentiation? Yes, it, it is certainly a postmodern uh, <laughs> approach. Yeah. Um, and, and for sure, some people long for certainty and long for structure that this approach would not give. Um, and they will find it somewhere. Um, I think I would not be surprised if in the next 10 years we see a whole slew of new religious movements or cults essentially places that give answers in the midst of so much uncertainty. Are there uh, any, like, I, we, I introduced you to this fellow who was setting, he thought about setting up an innovation fund in LA um, to invest in, like, religious startups. Is there anything like that going on right now? Uh, I, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, usually it's individuals. It's individuals, um, so, right. But, yeah, right. you see, I mean, Hallow is a new app with all sorts of Catholic practices, for example. So absolutely, like, religion is moving and has been online mm. for, for, for some time. Um, and, and you're going to see, again, I think more and more those things being specifically targeted not as a whole life 360 mm. you're going to find your children's sunday school here mm. plus your experience of actually i can't remember his name we had the fellow who founded pray.com yeah steve. steve yeah yeah steve what right. a character yeah yeah, yeah. what a, well so here's yeah. an example so pray.com pray. yeah, yeah, steve created yeah. pray.com which is essentially in 2015 like he had a traumatic friend died or something right? yeah yeah in a helicopter crash and um essentially created this platform in which people can pray together. They can share their prayers, they can ask for prayers, they can pray for the world, pray for the world in certain moments. Mm. And he's an entrepreneur, right? Like that's what he does and he has a, a deep faith himself. Um, but now he's suddenly realizing, hang on, as is true with so many innovators who are working in this space, I'm not just running a business. I'm not just running a nonprofit. Right. I, I, I am like a mega church. You're like leader. the leader. Yes. Yeah, he's like the leader, and he's very tall. Yes. So he comes in like a mega leader. And so he is setting essentially the theological foundations for millions of people who are using yeah. this app. Poor guy is completely terrified yeah. by that responsibility, <laughs> as he should be, frankly. Yeah. Um, and so the question about like the the, the darker side. I don't want to use that language. The 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 more dangerous side. Of um, of religion, frankly, is when leadership is not is not in integrity. Mm. And I think as we as we step away from so many of the institutions, some of the things we lead, that we lose are those structures of support and accountability. Mm. More questions. Mm. Nice to meet you guys. This is Jane, everyone. She's in from Berkeley. Hi. 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 Um, I am curious about this because. Um, you know, the organization of religion, or more to the point, the organization of churches, mm. has for many years, of course, been a tax dodge, tax haven. Um, I'm, I'm super interested in the movement of mindfulness-based stress reduction into the workplace. Yeah. And I'm looking at the very, very big business that that represents. Um, I have a friend who works for the Potential Project. I don't know if you're mm. familiar with them. And they are getting big clients all over the world. But they're competing with McKinsey. And Deloitte, I mean, do you want to learn mindfulness from Deloitte? <laughs> you know? <laughs> only through PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, only, yeah, totally, exactly. And so I'm just really curious about the commercialization of this. I remember um, meeting the people at Yoga Journal when it went from being a, a thing driven by Buddhism and by yoga practice to being a for-profit magazine. And that was, what, 20 years ago or something. So I'm just curious what your thoughts on are. Um, on the commercialization of this, and, and does it dovetail at some point with a, with a total change, a radical change in our own sense of spirituality? Yes, Jane, I love this Great question. Um, yeah, in 2018, Vice released a, a report saying, you know, brands have moved into politics, 
Colin Kaepernick, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the next white space in branding is spirituality. And so, um, uh, is spirituality. And so 100%, yes, that is happening. And there is deep, not just resentment, but like existential fear about how it changes the practices, right? Headspace is a great example. Andy, who, who was one of the founders of Headspace, had been uh, 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 just about to take his final vows um, as, a, as a monk, came back and said, no, I want to create this, this thing called Headspace. Um, and even the color palette is inspired by the robes of the monks from the monastery that he was in. It's beautiful. However, the market has pushed the product to move from the shortest meditation being 20 minutes to being five minutes to being one minute. And now a significant part, if not most of their income, comes from corporate clients who provide headspace as a benefit they to their as employees. They as a business have done a really good job with that, and Calm has tried to compete on getting the corporate clients. Exactly. It has a very different But it brand. has fundamentally changed the practice. Yeah. So, uh, so far I'm saying yes, 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 yes to your question. Mm -hmm. Here's the no, which is that, again, we think of religion as being this thing that's pure on a hill and it's always been separate from the world. Capital and religion have always interacted. Um, even if in its most beautiful uh, kind of imaginations, right, Jesus turning the table in the temple, all of that, mostly money and religion have always lived side by side and influenced one another. So although I'm saying yes, and it's scary to your question, I also don't want to think that it's something new. It has always been true. Selling indulgences is the obvious Western example. Um, so uh, yes, and is what I would say. Yeah. Mm. All right. So uh, first and foremost, I just want to say thank you so much for the discussion. One of the things that really strikes me right now is here we are in 2021, and the Supreme Court's about to probably strike down Roe v. Wade. Uh, you have, obviously, Amy Barrett, uh, Comey Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, a majority Catholic Supreme Court. I guess I would be more on the side of uh, investigating this through the prism of the Matrix rather than Harry Potter. <laughs> but, um, nice. you know, the, the eerie thing is... How do we think about this notion of cognitive dissonance? Because so many of the religions that you've been discussing come out of this notion of kind of a toxic cocktail of suppression of your notion of transcendence. Like if you're going to go to heaven, you've got to pay a papal indulgence, then you have Martin Luther, then you have wars, then you have Marxism, which one could argue is also kind of religion, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, fast forward to 2021. And then you have stuff like Burning Man, which one could argue is a, is a kind of a, a permutation engine of uh, kinds of religious impulse as well. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, because it seems like we're looking at the most trusted man in evangelical Christianity was Trump, which one could argue is a lunatic. Yes. You know, I mean, it's like lemmings wearing suicide vests. Um, so I would just love to hear the, the white Christian evangelical scene is deeply complicit in things like the prison industrial system yes. um, and, of course, uh, the grift you know, of what's going on right now. So yeah, I just love to. It's a little bit slightly more of a cynical take on things, but no, and, yeah, and we'd love as, to hear that as we should have. I, I totally appreciate that. The, the thing is, I think it's less about religion and it's it's more about conservatism. Because if you go back fifty years, Catholics in America were split half and half on being pro-choice or pro-life. It was not inherent to Catholicism to have that 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 perspective. Um, you know, most of the uh, most of the people who now claim an evangelical identity are not active churchgoers, um, and so there is a real divide between the reality of a lived religious life. Even if I disagree with many of the kind of theological and political commitments, and I think the way in which capitalism and empire and racism and and these these essentially forces that are beyond but 
go through religion have have shaped um, the political imagination. So I'm saying again, I'm saying yes and because I I I, I obviously like I'm a gay man. Like <laughs> religion's been fucking awful. Um, so I, I I don't want to I don't want to gloss over the horrors that are are real. Um, but at the same time, I think in terms of what to look for about what gives me hope and can be shaped, there's more in religion than I found anywhere else, including progressive political activism. Yeah. All right, um, so here's my question. So I'm a technology lawyer. I do deals day in, day out about, you know, where te I get to see where technology is going, like mm. in a year, in two years, in three years. I'm also an engineer. Um, and engineers are typically very logical and not thinking very much about kind of the human, just kind of what logically makes sense, yes, no. So how do you think religion should influence the development of technology? Like if you were to mm. like inject a religious kind of perspective into the, you know, Googles and Facebooks of the world, where, where how would you change the path of technology? That's a beautiful question. Mm. The obvious answer is to go down the ethical route, but that has been tried and I find it less than inspiring. The, the thing that I get most excited about is the bigger questions of what is technology for. And I think if we had a metric which centered human flourishing, to use that language, um, which was more rigorous than let's connect everyone uh, or let's help people create, um, that really centered those, those archetypical we use this language of belonging, becoming, and beyond. How does it help us do those things? If yes, then 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 yes. If no, then we won't build it. That 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 kind of framework would be something I'd be really interested in. Mm. I, I'm just as interested in how technology should shape the religion of the future. Um, to kind of turn it mm. the other way, because as we Ilya Delio is this wonderful theologian who was a, a scientist in her training, and so she uses scientific and and technology language essentially to communicate her understanding of God. And so much of the kind of traditional, at least in the, in the Western world, the language for God was agricultural. It, it was based on the culture and the tools and the experiences of the time. Um, and so now as we live, you know, like we are already, that's not, I'll get my phone is in, it's in this <laughs> one. We are, we are already kind of bionic people. Um, how, how is technology going to shape our understanding and imagination of what God is and how it works? So I, 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 I wouldn't want to walk into a room with those people with a kind of moralistic, like, this is what you should do. I'm just as interested in how learning about the world through, through that frame can shape our imagination of what God is. Jordan, nice to meet you. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one, thanks for the conversation. Fantastic, and I'm a reformed, reformed Jew, which means I'm an incredible atheist. <laughs> uh, but I, I strongly believe in the power of community, and I've been rephrasing this whole conversation around that notion of, of community, and it's you know definitely resonates with me. Uh, but I also have a, a fairly deeply personal dilemma. Mm. I'm curious about your perspective, which is I'm a so I, I run a small business about 150 people or so. And I see the need for a community. Yeah. Uh, but I also, so, and, and I, yes. I, I see the opportunity yes. to deliver community yeah. to my company, to my employees. Uh, but I also have this strong conviction that yes. I shouldn't deliver that, that they should get that community somewhere else. 
how do I, one, how do I deal with that sort of dilemma? Because in the US, they're not getting it elsewhere. Correct. Mm -hmm. uh, and how do I deal with that conundrum, I guess? Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that, Jordan, because this is something we experience with, with employers all of the time. Um, both on a kind of, well, we know it would help them be productive, but also just like on a moral, like, I, I love these people. I, you know, I, I want them to be happy. <clears throat> you can't be in community with people if I can fire you. I, 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 oh, I, that's I, true. I, I oh, really yeah. There we go. And so <laughs> I, I think it's very... Excommunication? <laughs> well, I mean, that's... But are you jokingly, I'm not but that is, that is how it's experienced. Yeah. That is how it's experienced. Because if this is the place that I go to to find meaning, connection, and, yeah, and yeah, purpose, yeah. and now you're throwing me out, fuck you. Not, not, just, not just because of my livelihood, because these are my friends. This is the place that I narrated my sense of purpose through. So that, that's why I'm saying I don't think we should locate it in the office. Uh, but I do think you can connect people to the, and frankly pay for those pathways towards here. <laughs> and that, I this mean, is how we were introduced earlier. Like, oh, you should underwrite a post excellency right here. <laughs> and and there's there's community, and then there's you know, and there's new organizations that are designed to do this. So Medley is one, the Grand is one, which are essentially small groups of people who are paid for by their work to share a question over a certain amount of time. Should I have kids? What do I do about my aging parents? Um, how how do me and my partner manage infertility? Um, how do I find purpose? You know, those kind of questions that that are juicy and good uh, and real, that really matter to people. Um, and you pay for their time and for the people who facilitate those conversations. I, I think that's where we're going and what is needed. I think maybe we'll end on that. And if anyone, wa oh, okay, Edward, one more. And then if anyone has any further questions, I'll be, he'll, be um, <laughs> he'll be here or he can go back in my office. Edward, hi. Oh, sorry. Because he always asks such great questions. He's so philosophical, well, I can't. Yeah. Um, I just would love to hear your thoughts on QAnon as a religious movement yeah. because I think they're doing an incredible job at, 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 at using rituals, using the whole thing of um, if you do your research right, you're pure and then you have to help others who are sinful and fuck babies in pizza parlors. And so I would, I would love to hear your, your views. On what, what was the group? What was the QAnon? QAnon. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the most powerful thing QAnon does for most of its members is to provide a community of belonging and a sense mm -hmm. of shared purpose. And so part of the whole, like, we're going to expose the, you know, pedophile ring is to give the most intense form of righteous purpose that, that, that can be found. Um, most people, so the Mormon church is another good example. Like most people don't become Mormon <clears throat> because they really believe the Mormon theology. They become Mormon because they like the people they're hanging out with mm. and they happen to be Mormon. Mm -hmm. And so that is part of, uh, I think part of it too is just like, oh, the, these might be my people, we have a shared, we have a shared mm. activity. I am in no way a scholar of, of QAnon, so I, I don't want to say more. Well, we all want a sense of belonging, and it's... Yeah, and I think it's a powerful way of doing that, mm. yeah. yeah. I think we're going to wrap up... Yeah. Nikki, what do you got? Oh, Nikki. Yeah. <laughs> so, but quickly, thank, thank you, guys. Thank you. Woo! Thank you, Casper. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Post Hoc Digital Salon with Susan McTavish-Best. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a great review. It really does make a difference. 
If you don't already, please make sure to follow us on social media at McTavishBest on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for attending our digital salon.